Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, November 2nd, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with today's top stories. Biden condemns oil, gas, and war profiteering and threatens a windfall tax. 1,000 people are charged over unrest in Tehran. A UN watchdog visits sites of Russia's dirty bomb allegations. Russia is reportedly recruiting U.S.-trained Afghan commandos. Biden heads to Florida for a midterm campaign push. Meadows loses his challenge to his January 6th committee subpoena. Elon Musk fires the Twitter board. A massive U.S. publisher merger is trust busted. Tokyo issues its first same-sex partnership certificates. And Algeria hosts the Arab League summit. President Biden tops our news today as he condemns oil, gas, war profiteering and threatens a windfall tax. And here are the facts as agreed upon by United Press International, Reuters, New York Times, Politico and New York Post. On Monday, U.S. President Biden called on oil and gas companies to invest their profits in lowering costs at the pump and increasing production or risk facing a higher tax rate. This comes a week before the U.S. midterm elections, with Republicans reportedly favored to win a House majority, while the Senate is a close race. In a speech from the White House, Biden took aim at five of the biggest oil companies that have reportedly seen earnings soar as oil and gasoline prices surged this year. An outrageous advantage, Biden says, stems from the war in Ukraine. Biden accused the oil giants of war profiteering, saying the oil companies' record profits today are not because they're doing something new or innovative. The profits are a windfall of war. While the president didn't explicitly endorse a windfall tax, he said he would consult with Congress on legislative options when it returns from the recess after the election. This follows last week's report that ExxonMobil, Chevron, and Shell Oil reported third-quarter profits totaling about $40 billion. Biden's comments come as, in the run-up to the midterms, polls suggest that economic concerns could be an obstacle to Democrats, with just 40% of voters approving of how the White House has addressed the economy. According to the American Automobile Association, the average cost of gas is currently $3.76. While this is lower than the record high of over $5 in June, It's up from $3.40 last year. All right, those were the facts. And on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. So let's start with the Republican narrative, courtesy of The Federalist. This latest move to bully corporations is nothing more than a desperate attempt to salvage the midterm elections. Biden's proposal of yet another dangerous policy will only increase energy prices and energy poverty, while making America more reliant on foreign countries for its daily energy needs. And Washington Post gives us a Democratic narrative. Biden is right to threaten energy companies that are driven by unadorned greed. While the average American struggles to make ends meet, oil and gas companies have taken advantage of the oil scarcity and racked up huge profits. And it's time this ends. Windfall taxes would ensure excess oil profits go back to help the Americans who are getting ripped off at the pump. No matter what your political stance is, it's hard to have any sympathy for those oil and gas companies because they always seem to profit. Yeah, it seems like one of those things where (laughs) prices go up, they make more money. Prices go down, they make more money. I think they have it figured out. Do you want to start an oil company? Thinking about it. Let's do it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll look into it. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. 
1,000 people are charged over unrest in Tehran related to the Iran protests. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Reuters, Al Jazeera, Iran International, Al Monitor, and Iran Wire. On Monday, the Iranian judiciary announced that it has indicted over 1,000 people arrested during the seven-week-long protests sparked by Masha Amini's death in police custody. The Tasmin News Agency reported that they were indicted on charges of carrying out acts of sabotage. Trials are expected to take place this week. Chief Justice Golam Hossein Mohseni Ijai urged an end to the protests on Sunday, deeming them riots. He also claimed that those supporting demonstrations also fund terrorists, such as those who perpetrated last Wednesday's attack on the shrine in Shiraz, in which 13 people died. Protests persisted on Sunday, with rallies documented at universities in Tehran and in Senandaj, the capital of the province of Kurdistan. They came despite Hossan Salami, the commander-in-chief of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or IRGC, on Saturday stating that it would be the last day of the riots. In response to Salami's suggestion that security forces might intensify their crackdown on the demonstrations, the EU and Germany stated that they're researching potential options to classify Iran's IRGC as a terrorist group. Although it's not known how many have been arrested nationwide, rights groups estimate the total to be approximately 14,000. According to Iran's Human Rights Activist News Agency, or HRANA, 284 people have been killed by security forces, including 45 children, and 35 security personnel have been killed. Meanwhile, authorities have denied that 22-year-old Mohammed Gobadlo, who is accused of killing a police officer and injuring five others by driving into them, has been sentenced to death, saying a verdict is yet to be reached. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. We have three spins emerging from this one, beginning with a pro-Iran narrative coming from Tehran Times. This unrest is the result of long-term planning by the American regime with the support of other enemies of Iran, including Saudi Arabia and Israel. The tragic but natural death of Masa Amini is serving as a pretext for this terrorist alliance's ultimate goal of destroying the Islamic Republic. The riots have failed miserably to achieve their malicious purposes, having instead cost the lives of security personnel and innocent civilians. The anti-Iran narrative comes from foreign affairs. This is the most powerful and sustained Iranian protest in a generation, and significantly, it is led by women. The terrified Iranian regime has begun a deadly crackdown against protesters because they know that if women can successfully emancipate themselves from the patriarchy-reliant government, the current administration will cease to exist. Although it faces challenges, we can only hope the movement prevails. And finally, we have a nerd narrative for this story saying there's a 50% chance that Iran will cease to be an Islamic Republic by April of 2038. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Turning our attention to day 251 of the Ukraine conflict, as the UN watchdog visits sites of Russia's dirty bomb allegations and Ukraine grapples with power outages. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Ukraine Forum, Pravda, MSN, and TASS. On Tuesday, experts from the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, the UN's nuclear watchdog, began inspecting two sites in Ukraine at the center of dirty bomb allegations leveled by officials in Moscow. IAEA chief Rafael Grossi said the inspections would be completed soon. The IAEA are visiting the sites at Kyiv's invitation, and Ukrainian and Western officials have widely dismissed Russia's allegations. 
Meanwhile, Ukraine continues to grapple with power outages in many parts of the country after a fresh round of Russian strikes on the nation's energy infrastructure on Monday. According to the Ukrainian government, Russia has destroyed about 40% of the country's energy infrastructure, affecting a total of 16 regions. As a result of Monday's strikes, Ukrainian officials said five civilians were killed and nine more were injured. Reports say four people were killed and three more were injured in Donetsk. One was killed and five were injured in Mykolaiv, and one person was injured in Kharkiv. Officials added that the body of a civilian who'd been killed earlier was also discovered in Donetsk. After Russia withdrew from the Black Sea Grain Initiative over the weekend, its military also reportedly attacked two civilian tugboats carrying grain near Mykolaiv. According to Ukrainian officials, two civilians died in the attack, while one injured person was rescued. The fate of a further crew member on board at the time remains unknown. Tugboats were never part of the initial agreement. However, a number of larger vessels carrying grain continued to depart from Ukrainian ports on Monday in seeming defiance of Russia's withdrawal from the deal. Moscow's reaction to the development remains to be seen. Renewed Russian attacks were again recorded across the country on Tuesday with reports of strikes in Sumy, Poltova, Mykolaiv, Dnipropetrovsk, and Donetsk. According to initial reports, one civilian was killed in Mykolaiv. Meanwhile, Russia has said it repelled a Ukrainian attack in the direction of Berislav in the southern Kherson region. Local officials stated that in light of Ukrainian attacks and potential flooding from the Kakovka hydroelectric plant, a decision has been made to extend the evacuation of civilians by a further 9 miles or 15 kilometers. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative on this story coming from the New York Times. Russia's allegations of a dirty bomb are transparently false. The claims are a ploy being utilized by the Kremlin to justify a drastic escalation of the war. And TASS gives us a pro-Russian narrative. It says that Russia has collected evidence to back up its claims that Ukraine is plotting a dirty bomb, which it is prepared to provide to Western countries. These allegations must be taken seriously. And we have a nerd narrative on this story saying that there's a 3% chance that at least one nuclear weapon will be detonated in Ukraine before 2023, according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Russia is recruiting U.S.-trained Afghan commandos. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Foreign Policy, the Middle East Monitor, Al Jazeera, Fox News, and the Associated Press. The Associated Press reported Monday that Russia is recruiting former Afghan special forces who were allied with U.S. troops in Afghanistan and fled to Iran following the U.S. withdrawal to fight in Ukraine. According to three former Afghan generals, Moscow aims to enlist thousands of members of the elite former U.S.-trained National Army Commando Corps in a so-called foreign legion. The ex-servicemen trained by U.S. Navy SEALs and Army Green Berets are reportedly offered a monthly payment of $1,500 and security to avoid deportation to Afghanistan. The elite unit consisted of about 20 to 30,000 volunteer troops who faced persecution after the U.S. troops left Afghanistan and the Taliban regained control. While a few hundred high-ranking officials were evacuated during the withdrawal, many others fled to neighboring countries. As foreign policy reported last week, citing unnamed Afghan military and security sources, Russia's Wagner Group is believed to be behind the supposedly Iranian-backed recruitment of the commandos to bolster Moscow's war effort in Ukraine. While Washington and Moscow have so far not responded to requests for comment, a spokesman for Wagner founder Yevgeny Prigozhin 
reportedly called the claims crazy nonsense. However, before these recent reports, it was alleged that the Wagner Group had recruited fighters from countries other than Afghanistan. Several months ago, the U.S. Department of Defense claimed that Syrian and Libyan mercenaries were fighting alongside Russian troops in Ukraine. As we shed some light on the two spins that have emerged from this story, we start with the establishment critical narrative coming from The Drive. The fact that former elite Afghan soldiers could end up fighting alongside Russia in the Ukrainian war is a remarkable irony in history. Washington only has itself to blame for this turn of events, having abandoned tens of thousands of Afghan U.S. trained soldiers after 20 years of war. Not for the first time, Washington's misguided military ventures could end up turning against the U.S. itself. And we have a pro-establishment narrative from CNN. The fact that Russia is recruiting Afghan mercenaries shows one thing above all, Russia is incapable of bringing Ukraine to its knees. Therefore, it's not surprising that Wagner recruited prison inmates to fight on the front lines. Given the incompetence of the Russian army and the declining morale among Wagner's troops, it's wishful thinking to believe that Afghan mercenaries will make any difference. And we shift our focus to the U.S. midterms as Biden heads to Florida for a campaign push. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Politico, WPTV, WOKV, Reuters, and Independent. President Biden is traveling to Florida, and he'll hold an event at Hollandale Beach to speak about Social Security and Medicare, and will attend a campaign event at Miami Gardens. He's planning to campaign for Charlie Crist, the Democratic nominee for governor, as well as Representative Val Demings, who is challenging Republican Senator Marco Rubio. Former President Trump is also expected to campaign for Rubio this week in Miami. Biden is expected to include taxpayer-funded remarks, with the White House stating that he will highlight Republicans' very different vision for America. The White House has also revealed that Biden will emphasize the GOP proposals related to older Americans, such as raising the retirement age. The trip is Biden's first political event in a state that he lost in in 2020. As well as being expected to criticize Republican Senator Rick Scott, Biden is also expected to take aim at Florida governor and potential 2024 opponent Ron DeSantis. Biden is set to campaign in New Mexico on Thursday, California on Friday, and Pennsylvania on Saturday as the midterms draw ever nearer. All right, this very political story has some very political narratives. Let's start with a Democratic narrative spin from CNN. The Biden administration views Florida as the perfect political backdrop to frame the midterms as a choice between so-called extreme MAGA Republicans and Democrats. The trip is also an important opportunity to size up a potential 2024 rival in DeSantis as Biden looks to solidify his own position as the incumbent Democratic nominee. An American Lookout gives us a Republican narrative. So far, Biden has been missing in battleground states such as Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada. This could be due to his low approval ratings or simply because he cannot handle the campaigning at his age. Clearly, Biden is a liability to his own party. Otherwise, he would be stumping where it matters at this vital time. We've got another nerd narrative as well. This one says that there is an 11% chance that Joe Biden will announce he will not run for president in 2024, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. How old is he going to be if he runs again? 103? Uh, 102. <laughs> Come on. Give him, cut, cut him a break. Uh, okay? You're right. You're right. Meadows' challenge to the January 6th subpoena is dismissed. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, USA Today, and Fox News. 
On Monday, a federal judge blocked two lawsuits from Mark Meadows, former President Trump's final chief of staff, challenging subpoenas from the House Select Committee investigating the January 6, 2021 Capitol riots. The committee subpoenaed Meadows and his phone provider for documents and testimony in September 2021. He filed suit in December 2021, challenging the committee's legitimacy based on it having fewer members than were originally authorized and because none of them were nominated by the GOP. U.S. District Judge Carl Nichols ruled the committee is protected by the speech or debate clause of the Constitution because Meadows' contact with Trump on January 6th made him a subject of the investigation. Shortly after Meadows filed suit, the committee referred him to the Department of Justice on contempt charges, but the DOJ didn't pursue the case. The committee isn't just pursuing Meadows. Its recent subpoena to Trump is still awaiting his response before a Friday deadline, and the former president's testimony has been requested for November 14th. Meadows has the opportunity to appeal the decision. Some Republicans have promised to end the committee's work if they take control of the House after the midterm elections. We're going to shed light on two spins from this story, beginning with a pro-Trump narrative. It's coming from Washington Examiner. The January 6th committee is out of touch with reality, and its existence is an overreaction to what was, for the most part, a legitimate protest of questionable election results. Meadows' correspondence hasn't been immune to the committee's distortion of the facts and evidence, and no one should be compelled to cooperate with this illegitimate body. And the Democrats are spinning as well, this one courtesy of the New York Times. Allegations of voter fraud in the 2020 election are baseless. Meadows was deeply involved in Trump's anti-democratic plan to overturn the results of the election, and his full cooperation, including testimony, must be obtained to get to the bottom of what happened before and on January 6th. His lawsuits are just his way of running out the clock until the GOP possibly takes over the House majority and disbands the committee. In our next story, Elon Musk fires the Twitter board. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Telegraph, DW, Guardian, National Review, and NewsBud. According to a Monday filing with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, or the SEC, Elon Musk has fired Twitter's entire board of directors, making himself its sole director. The dismissal of the nine-member board, which comes less than a week after Musk finalized his $44 billion takeover, includes Chairman Brett Taylor and former Google CFO Patrick Pichette. Last week, Musk fired Twitter's former CEO Parag Agrawal and other top company officials who were reportedly escorted out of Twitter headquarters by company security. The company's restructuring is expected to continue, with the Washington Post reporting on Monday that Musk's team has been discussing letting go of 25% of Twitter's workforce, which had more than 7,000 employees in 2021, in the first round of potential layoffs. This latest move is one of many modifications that the billionaire is reportedly contemplating and comes after Musk announced on Sunday that Twitter might revamp its entire approach to the blue verification badges displayed on profiles to authenticate users. The news also comes amid calls from U.S. politicians to investigate Saudi Arabia's prince Awalid bin Talal's stake in the company, who announced he was rolling over his previous $1.9 billion in company stock, making him the company's biggest shareholder behind Musk. We've got a right narrative spin on this story coming from Fox News. Musk's acquisition is a real opportunity for Twitter to become free of biased censorship. With the billionaire entrepreneur at the helm, he can retain the general code of conduct to fight deceitful foreign influences, while also allowing the marketplace of ideas to flourish, freeing it from nefarious fact-checkers. 
and DW provides us with a left narrative. While billionaires like Elon Musk may have the money to buy and influence social media platforms, they don't possess the character to manage them properly. Musk's Twitter history reveals an erratic personality with the potential to vastly alter the market with a single tweet simply to advance his own interest. With Twitter set to have no barriers to what can or cannot be said, the app is looking like a disaster waiting to happen. And Narrative C comes from CNBC. The real concern regarding Twitter's workings is the Saudi prince's financial stake in the company. Owning over 16% of the platform gives the authoritarian leader access to sensitive user data, which could have serious personal and national security implications. An investigation must be opened. I'm wondering if Elon Musk is going to retire the uh, the old blue verification badges and just kind of shoot those out into space with that car. <laughs> He's going to fill fill the car. With I mean, that's all we need is with, more space junk with electronic <laughs> with electronic check mark. No, those check marks are too valuable to shoot in the space. Yeah, we got to keep those. That's true. I'll take one uh, before they go. And in news from the world of publishing, a federal judge blocks a massive merger. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by CBS, New York Times, and Fox News. On Monday, Penguin Random House's proposed purchase of rival Simon & Schuster was blocked. U.S. District Court Judge Florence Y. Pon announced that she agreed with the U.S. Department of Justice that combining two of the world's largest publishers would lessen competition for top-selling books. Pon's ruling will remain sealed until Friday to protect confidential information and get feedback from both sides of the case on what details should be redacted. Assistant Department of Justice Attorney General Jonathan Cantor celebrated the decision, which he said protects vital competition for books and is a victory for authors, readers, and the free exchange of ideas. He added the proposed merger would have reduced competition and ultimately impoverished our democracy. Penguin Random House announced it would seek an appeal and called the ruling an unfortunate setback for readers and authors. The three-week trial exposed numerous inner workings of the publishing industry and the impacts of consolidation. Executives from Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster testified that the merger would benefit writers because cost savings in some aspects could lead to more corporate spending on books. Horror author and signature writer for Simon & Schuster Stephen King testified on behalf of the government, and following the decision, he tweeted that he was delighted about the outcome. Scott, thank you for the facts. Two spins emerging from this story, beginning with Narrative A, coming from Fortune. The Department of Justice has had some setbacks in its attempt to ensure a fair and competitive marketplace across industries, but this is a solid victory. The federal government can only hope it can convince other judges to break with precedent and make decisions that'll wisely enforce antitrust laws and limit future consolidation attempts by companies. This is a win against rampant mergers and acquisitions that hurt consumers in the end. And NewsBud brings us Narrative B. The DOJ shouldn't get too carried away celebrating this win. There are several other cases working their way through the courts, and the government will need to convince business-friendly federal judges. Look for more consolidation attempts as companies continue to view the DOJ as a paper tiger while assessing the benefits of corporate mergers. I'm wondering if Stephen King arrived in court with a block of wood and a sledgehammer. Oh, he was going to hobble this case? (laughs) In our next story, Tokyo issues same-sex partnership certificates. And here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC, La Prensa Latina, NBC, and BBC News. On Tuesday, the Tokyo Metropolitan Government began issuing certificates recognizing the partnerships of same-sex couples. 
This makes Tokyo the largest municipality to recognize partnerships in a country where same-sex marriage hasn't been legalized. The certificates don't provide equal rights, as with a heterosexual marriage, and aren't legally binding. But they do allow same-sex couples to receive recognition and be treated as married couples for some services such as public housing, health, and insurance benefits. The Tokyo Partnership Oath System will issue the certificates. The benefits don't cover inheritance, custody, or residence rights, tax deductions, or in-law benefits. The Tokyo government said in a statement the purpose of the new system is, quote, to promote understanding among Tokyo residents about sexual diversity and to reduce inconveniences in daily lives surrounding sexual minorities in order to create more pleasant living conditions for them. Same-sex couples are often banned from basic services such as jointly renting an apartment in Japan. One resident recounted a story of her partner having a medical emergency at home. When she called for an ambulance, she was told to obtain permission from her partner's parents for treatment. Japan is currently the only G7 country that doesn't recognize same-sex unions. In a 2021 poll, 57% of the public was in favor of the unions, with only 37% against them. Despite public support, the district court in Osaka ruled that the existing ban on same-sex marriage is unconstitutional. La Prensa Latina brings us Narrative A on this story. While this is a win, there's much more work to be done for LGBTQ communities in Japan. Japan needs to step up and provide protections, just as the other members of the G7 do. The overall lack of recognition reverberates through the country and leads to a lack of inclusivity. And NPR Online News gives us a narrative B for this story. Japan is overall moving in the correct direction, even though it's at a slow and methodical pace. With nudging from the international community, including the American Chamber of Commerce in Japan, legal rulings are, one by one, catching up to the will of the Japanese people when it comes to LGBTQ rights. Our final story, Algeria hosts the first Arab League summit in two years. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Al Jazeera, Reuters, Al Arabia, Doha News, and Adelaide. Leaders from across the Arab world met in Algeria on Tuesday for the 31st summit of the Arab League. As the region battles to find common ground over a series of divisive issues amid rising inflation, energy and food shortages, and drought, the Palestinian cause, relations with Turkey and Iran, normalization with the Syrian government, and tensions between Algeria and Morocco are all expected to be on the agenda for the first summit since the outbreak of the COVID pandemic. While normalization with Israel allegedly violates the core commitments of the Arab League, a condemnation is unlikely as influential states have supported it. This summit is also set to discuss other issues, including the conflict in Yemen and Libya's political disorder. Several Arab leaders, however, have confirmed they aren't attending the summit, including Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, United Arab Emirates leader Mohammed bin Zayed, and Morocco's King Mohammed VI. Algeria has been largely absent from Arab affairs following the 2019 mass protest that led to the ousting of President Abdelaziz Bouteflika with this meeting reportedly being used to boost diplomatic clout. Algiers recently hosted the leaders of France and Italy and several Palestinian factions. Meanwhile, Russia is ready to boost ties with Arab League members, with President Vladimir Putin saying he was confident that efforts to further enhance the partnership between Russia and Arab countries are in line with the common interests of the parties and the need to ensure global peace and stability. 
Thank you, Scott. And two spins have been extracted from the facts of this story, and we start with a pro-Palestine spin coming from Al-Mayadeen. This Arab summit is a great opportunity to put the Palestinian cause on center stage for the Arab world. Though some countries in the region seek to serve their own interests by normalizing with Israel, the Palestinian cause is the fundamental objective of the Arab people, and it will continue to play an essential role in the hearts and minds of Arabs across the region. The summit might not deter normalization, but at least the Arab world may be more united in confronting Israel. And wrapping up the show with this pro-Israel spin from Times of Israel. Though the Arab League summit may give Algeria some extra points within the Arab world, it will change little regarding the Israeli-Palestinian issue. Normalization is a reality that countries like Algeria and Syria cannot stand up against. Political unity among the governments of the Arab world simply doesn't exist, and this summit will likely not change that. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, November 2nd, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. If you'd like more information on Improve the News, we invite you to visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.